views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. Now, research consultant and a good friend of the show, Maria O'Dwyer, who's been with us uh, for many reasons over the years, uh, she um, co-wrote an opinion piece. This is in the Irish Examiner newspaper this week uh, about uh, what was endured by the family uh, when her dad ended up in A&E at UHL, the hospital in Dora Doyle. And Maria is on the line to tell us a little bit more now. Good morning, Maria. Good morning, Joe. How are you? Not too bad. So tell us just a little bit about your dad and the treatment that he needed. Yeah, Joe, so um, my father would be recently diagnosed with um, cancer and so was an oncology patient and last Monday met his consultant out in the regional who felt that he'd be better off admitted due to an infection and there was kind of, I suppose, sudden um, weight loss um, that they wanted to address. But the advice was, we assumed, because that advice was given in the oncology unit, that he would just be admitted there and then. But we were advised that he would be better to go home, come back the next morning and present at A&E. So we obviously asked if we could avoid A&E, given how unwell he was. Um, and the consultant very apologetically explained that, no, to be admitted to oncology, you have to still go through A&E. But that it should be okay because they weren't going to leave somebody who was so unwell sit in A&E for long. They'd bring him up for radiotherapy. So my sister I think a lot of people initially would be surprised to hear that, Maria, because you know, obviously cancer care in general is very good at UHL in Dora Doyle. And, and the concept of someone not being able to go there directly rather than through A&E? Yeah, it was really unusual. And actually, the consultant explained this um, as uh, one of the issues that presented because of COVID. So you had to go through, which kind of made sense. But actually, since we wrote the article, we've had lots and lots of emails and messages from people who, well before COVID, had said that was the process. So you do have to go through A&E to present into any section of the hospital now. Um, And and what was your inner reaction when you heard A&E? Well, I suppose we all know, you know, anybody in Limerick or indeed the Midwest with the size of the catchment, you have that moment of, oh my goodness, we're, we're you know, that, that's a, a small war zone. We're not going to get in and out of there quickly. Um, and my friend was from the get-go, but he can't be on a trolley. He's exceptionally vulnerable now. Radiotherapy and the infection that he had presented with make him exceptionally vulnerable. Um, also conscious of the fact that he had done everything in the last two years to protect himself from COVID. And this couldn't be the place where he'd pick COVID up on an open trolley in a corridor. So we were you know, we were worried. But I suppose he presented to A and E at eleven that morning and his first radiotherapy session was scheduled for lunchtime. So we assumed, okay, well at the worst case a two hour wait, we can absolutely do that, he'll be fine. Um, and radiotherapy then he'll be brought in. But no, was brought to radiotherapy at lunchtime and returned to A and E. Um, and I suppose for us, that's where things started to go wrong, just in terms of, you know, what, what followed was 56 hours in A&E. 56 um, hours? 56 hours. Um, and what we said from the get-go, really, I suppose the reason for the article, and the reason my, my sister Helena and I wrote it was, you know, we were there with my father and he was going to be okay. He had support. And I suppose he had advocates. He's a very independent and strong man himself. It just happens that his voice has gone both literally and metaphorically because he's been treated for his throat. He had also we, we could advocate and that was grand. Um, but it was the amount of people out there and particularly elderly people. And over those 56 hours for us, it was a disproportionate amount of older men, which is why we call it the article No Country for Old Men. And it just felt that there was a vulnerability of people on trolleys who didn't have a voice, who didn't have anybody with them, and who were very much just exposed. You know, their dignity was compromised and their care, their care was compromised. 
Um, so for us, that's what it was about. That you know, my dad's story obviously to us was important, but he had us, and it, it was a system failure, I suppose. Right. Really, and, that we and Maria, I mean, seeing it from the inside, having heard stories as we all have from the outside, was it better or worse than you imagined? It was a lot worse than, than I imagined. And I mean, if, if I'm to be honest, Joe, and we hear, like everybody, I said, we hear the tallies every day. And I know locally, Maurice Quinlevin, every week has gone to great lengths to highlight that. And you hear it, and it's like a news piece at the sound voice. We hear it and you think, you know, oh my God, I hope everybody's okay. But then you're out there and you experience it. And the, I think the best description of it is chaos. But it's chaos at every level, from from the smallest thing like no water in the, the, the water fountains to trolleys being moved around to enable porters to move patients out quickly. And just a system that doesn't seem fit for purpose. And while I think we all look at it from the patient's perspective, I think what it did for me this time, as both you know, somebody who was there with somebody who needed care, but also I suppose wearing a research hat was the clinicians who I hadn't really thought about prior to that in terms of their experience of it, but how difficult they find it. The nurses, doctors and staff out there who are under incredible pressure um, and seem to me to be stuck in a system that just disables them to be able to give the care that they want to give. Um, And um, we know, for example, that the Minister for Health was there very recently. I, you know, that one I have to say, there's a certain irony. And, and I, uh, you know, our description of that was, you know, when somebody's coming suddenly to visit and you realise your house is a mess, so you start firing things under couches and into wardrobes and your reception area might look presentable. That's the only thing that I can think that could have happened. That when you come in, there are times. So you might remember, Joe, traditionally A&E, you walked in, you could see everything. So you kind of knew what was ahead. But the newer build and the newer system means that you come into an A&E area that can actually look calm enough and you think, all right, you know, this isn't too bad. But it's when those double doors open and triage happens that all the different zones that now constitute A&E and it's down those zones and those little corridors where all of that the, the, the kind of the, the lunacy of double trolleys and um, people on corridors all of that happens so I think the minister must have seen a surface point to it because I can't imagine that any minister worth their salt is going to see that kind of chaos and, and, and be able to endure well, it. Well the only thing I will say is uh, that um, UHL released a statement you know about that very point and we're adamant that they did not hide the real situation from the Minister for Health. I mean, extremely adamant about it. I just can't imagine having been in there, Joe, for the three days, where they took him or what happened. I know, and actually, I, I thought this was ironic as well. One of the, 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 the points that we had made was around uh, the inability of, of patients in A&E to go um, outside to access oncology, which would have made perfect sense, you know, if you could take patients outside for fresh air. But in the A&E zone... Um, the different corridors are built around a little courtyard. So the lovely natural courtyard with benches in the middle of A&E. Now that's locked to patients, which I thought was unfortunate. And when I asked, somebody explained that to stop people smoking, they might go out there to smoke and that can't happen. But, you know, the only time we saw it open in the three days was there was some kind of a press conference or there was a briefing or something happening out there. And you thought, it's the only calm place in the, ho- calm place in the hospital. Patients and staff can't access it, but there's a kind of a PR exercise happening out there now, which to me right. was epitomising the situation. And, uh, we're trying to, Maria O'Dwyer, I mean, you mentioned that your dad was in the position of having you and your sister uh, to help um, when he was in there and to advocate for him and, and all of that. But he was, as you say, in the emergency department for 56 hours and he was already ill. So uh, what impact did that have on him? Well, there was significant impact in in terms of addressing both the infection that he was presented for, which 
I, I suppose the, the staff explains they could address that in A&E, that was the emergency, but they couldn't address the other pieces which were related to the oncological treatment. So he would be in the unfortunate position at the moment um, of needing um, supplementary feeding through a peg bag, which means that that has to be administered and set up. And when we asked in A&E how that was going to be done, it was explained that there's no dietitian that's not available. Um, so that had to happen every 12 hours. So as we're coming up to the 12th hour, we started to panic slightly and thinking, well, he can't afford to lose any more weight. He absolutely needs that bag. How is this going to happen? So we got in the car and drove to Corbley and collected his equipment from home and his food supplements that Mer- the Mercy Hospital in Cork had released him with. Nice. Um- which... I was just going to say to you, which begs the question, had he been on his own, would he have been left without that supplement and without food? And that's the part we couldn't reconcile. Yes. Um, Clearly, you're telling the story from your perspective and your sister's perspective in the article you wrote for the Irish Examiner. But obviously your dad wanted this message to get out there as well and that people can appreciate your experience there. He did. Now, it's funny, he was very reticent. Um, there's always, he's of the, the, the older school uh, part that you don't want to rock the boat for anybody and I don't want this to affect some doctors and nurses who are doing their absolute best. Um, and I think in the, in the article we highlighted, and I hope we did justice to that. Um, but funny, the only thing he took offence to yesterday was the fact that we titled this No Country for Old Men because he's like, I'm assuming I'm not being considered an old man. I should just mention here the UL Hospitals Group response to us because Obviously, we indicated you were coming on this morning, Maria O'Dwyer. Yeah. Um, they say, as they often do, we're unable to discuss the details of patients in our care, as this would be a breach of our duty of confidentiality to the individuals. Um, however, we are sorry for the experience that Mr O'Dwyer and his family had in the ED at University Hospital Limerick, and we regret that any admitted patient has to wait a long time for a hospital bed. While we can assure the public that all patients receive care while they wait, this is not the level of care that we wish to provide. And we're working hard to minimise any such distress or inconvenience for patients and their loved ones. Um, and, and I wonder too, as someone pointed out to me recently when we were talking about this, how many people end up on chairs, not to mention on trolleys in the area? There was a 74-year-old lady, Joe, while we were out there, actually. Her daughter, Grace, flagged us um, while we were out there. She was 74 years old and she sat in a plastic chair for two days. And, you know, we can say that these are unfortunate events and, and that they're anomalies, but they're not. They're part of practice outside. And that's what's happening on a regular and daily basis. You know, um, elderly men out on, on trolleys that the trolleys are being banged into. They're exposed. Like there was one gentleman, his little gown wasn't closed properly at the back and he's lying there trying to hold his humility and dignity. Um, so they're not isolated cases. They've just become part of a system that really needs to be completely overhauled. Right. And if you've put your finger on it there, in that answer, is there any hope? I mean, it seems to us, certainly on this show, that we have talked about this for well over a decade at this point. And it wasn't great before reconfiguration. Reconfiguration happened, and we can debate that forever. And then we've had all the difficulties since. And every time we hear that something has been addressed, you know, more beds, uh, etc., something else seems to replace that problem with another problem. Is there any hope or is this just what we're all going to have to accept for time to come? No, I think, Joe, that we have to fight it and I think that nationally we just have to keep championing the fact that we need and deserve better care. It's what everybody's entitled to and in particularly the elderly people out there who built the place and who, you know, who, who brought us to where we are. 
and we're their voice and we have to continue. I think, Joe, there's big questions, right? So, I mean, at, at, at the top level, it's, it's about how many sardines can you fit in a can before it bursts? We're bursting out there, so Nina and Ennis need to be reopened. And that's the, 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 the kind of the numbers situation. Then when you look at the practice, I think it, it has to be completely overhauled in terms of the layers of management and decision-making that is so disconnected that when you ask anything and you get an answer, it has always come from the top who don't seem to understand the practice. For example, if a porter can't bring somebody from A&E to oncology outside of the hospital for a four-minute journey, but it takes maybe 12 minutes inside um, and they're bumping into people. In terms of patient well-being, why aren't we focused on the well-being? We're only treating medicine and treating people at their worst instead of trying to keep them healthy. So I think it's those small pieces that add up to all the kind of calamities that happen. But if you start to address those individually, I think then we have some hope out in in, in UHS. All right. Um, And your dad just at the moment, how's he getting on? He's still out by June, will be for a couple of weeks, yes. Um, but obviously doing much better since we left A&E and the staff and, you know, but I mean, this was never about staff and, and treatment. But it was the chaos of A&E, but the staff have been incredible throughout, even those in A&E who are under immense pressure and those up in the wards. But he's receiving really good care now and in a much better place than we were um, a week ago. All right. Well, listen, we wish your dad well. Pass on our regards and I'm sure the regards of listeners as well. And Maria O'Dwyer, thank you for writing the piece in The Examiner and thank you for talking to us about it um, this morning. And believe me, this is a, a subject that stays on the agenda here on this show on an ongoing basis. Thank you, Maria. Thanks, Joe. Thank Take you. care. Your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95.